On Christmas morning in 2003, a security guard on the Johnson & Wales Harborside campus in Providence, Rhode Island, discovered the body of a young man leaning up against a chain-link fence. Fingerprints would later identify the man as 22-year-old Roy Weber. Roy was part of a population of men who engaged in street-based sex work in Providence, many of them exchanging sexual acts for money to support their substance use. Almost 20 years later, Roy's homicide is still unsolved, though police have photos of a man they said could have information about what happened to Roy. Still, no arrests have been made to this day. Richard Holcomb knew Roy Weber, their lives intertwined by their mutual lifestyle at the time. He's now in recovery, and Rich has spent much of his adult life advocating and raising awareness for street-based sex work and helping researchers, healthcare professionals, and the general public better understand the realities of that life, one that he fell into at a young age. This is the case of Roy Weber, but it's also the story of Richard Holcomb, and how he sought recovery and helped reclaim Roy Weber's legacy by helping other men like him. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. When I started researching Roy Weber's story, the name Rich Holcomb appeared around every corner. I truly wonder if Roy's memory and story would have lived on as it has without Richard Holcomb's work. I contacted Rich on LinkedIn, and thankfully, my message reached him. He agreed to share his story and Roy's on Dark Down East. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island. I'm a person in recovery from substance use and sex work. I was using substances on the streets of Providence, you know, after I uh, became homeless and addicted to substances, I entered sex work to support my addiction. Sex work is a term that describes exchanging sexual services, performances, or products for compensation. It can refer to prostitution, a term that is considered outdated and derogatory in many uses, but it's still commonly used by law enforcement to describe the criminalized act of exchanging sexual services for money, either on the street or online. I had been approached by older men since I was 10 years old in the city of Providence. And, um, you know, I always turned them down. But when I started using drugs, I knew it was a quick, fast, easy way to make money. And, you know, with substance use, you know, I pretty much the part of my brain that had any sort of logical thinking was shut down. All that mattered was getting more drugs. So, I fell into that world and started, you know, exchanging sex and sexual acts for money to get the next hit. Sex work by men does not have the same spotlight or public awareness as women or even transgender people. It's invisible. It's 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 not it's something that you don't you can't really spot with the naked eye. As a male sex worker looks like a, a young man, you know, on the corner with a baseball hat and a hoodie. It appears like he's waiting for the bus or something. So for the average person driving by or walking by, they don't they don't pick up on what's what's going on. That, you know, this guy is actually on the corner, you know, subtly 
flagging down cars or giving people the eye to try to to try to turn a trick. It's disguised. It's a very disguised thing. You know, certainly there are areas in Providence that sort of cater to to male sex workers, so to speak. The bathhouses, adult bookstores. There are certain roads and areas in Providence where there's a lot of that happening. But yeah, it's not. It's something that can't. That just can't be spotted with the naked eye. I mean, I don't know how many times I've brought researchers and and acquaintances and professionals down into those areas, and they're like, I'm like, yeah, see that guy on the corner right there? Just watch him for for five minutes, and 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 you'll pick up on it. They're like, I would have never realized that if you hadn't pointed that out to me. Rich is honest about how he knew Roy Weber. They met after he returned to Providence from Montreal, Canada, where he'd been living on the street and engaging in sex work to survive. His relationship with Roy was a product of their parallel lives at the time. When I came back to Rhode Island, my addiction followed me, and I just started doing the same thing here. And um, that's when I ran into Roy. He was another um, drug user who was out on the streets. And, uh, you know, we would just occasionally use drugs when we would see each other. And if he had 10 bucks and I had 10 bucks, we put our pennies together and we would go and buy drugs at the local projects up the street from, from downtown. Roy Weber's life was rough from a very young age. According to reporting by Zachary Malinowski for the Providence Journal, Roy was born outside of San Diego, and his family later moved to Newport, Rhode Island. Roy's father would eventually leave, and it was hard on Roy. His family says that that's when Roy started hanging out with a rough crowd and drinking and using marijuana. His substance use advanced to ecstasy and cocaine. In 1996, when he was just 14 years old, Roy had been reported as a runaway twice in three months. He'd ended up in state group homes, and that's when he became a known element to police. But former Providence Police Major Stephen Campbell, who worked on Roy's case in 2003, told the reporter, quote, not in a highly criminal way, end quote, at least not at first. As an older teenager, Roy was known to hang around adult video stores and clubs downtown where he'd get picked up by men who paid him for sex. A bartender at a club called 69 Union Street at the time filed a complaint that Roy was suspected of soliciting sex in exchange for drinks. In 2003, he was arrested several times and wanted on outstanding warrants in Providence and Newport for various charges, including domestic assault. He served a few months in a minimum security unit at the Adult Correctional Institution for violating his probation for that conviction. There's little information about Roy Weber and who he was when he was at his best. His family told the Providence Journal that as a kid, he loved science and reading. Another source says Roy loved to make art and enjoyed spending time with his brother Ryan and sister Alicia. But the pieces of his humanity that made Roy, Roy, the positive memories and best parts of his personality, are lost in the reporting of his murder. Roy's story is largely overshadowed by his reported substance use and sex work and life on the street. Rich Holcomb never had the opportunity to learn who Roy was outside of substance use and sex work either. You know, I wish I had gotten to know him clean, but that 
that didn't happen at the time. It, it, that wasn't my story and it wasn't his. We were both out on the streets doing what we were doing. But I, I will say that he was a very broken person. I I can say that. It just seemed like he didn't want to be out there doing what he was doing. But really, anyone in that lifestyle doesn't really want to be doing that. It doesn't want to be trapped into that world of substance use and sex work. And, and you know, they, they went hand in hand with the lifestyle. For Rich and for Roy and for other men living the same lifestyle, sex work was just a means of survival they were conditioned to. So I know that was his story. It used to be my story. And it's a common thing that happens. It's like this ingrained behavior. And it takes a lot of therapy and a lot of work to sort of get through all that and accept it and really move on from it. And I wish Roy had had that opportunity. I know he had spent several, there were several times he, he wound up in um, boys' facilities for troubled teenagers and stuff. I know he wound up in, in those places, but he never never really got, I, I think, the opportunity to, to, to go into to treatment, to really look at his life and look at his issues and look at his behaviors and work through through them. He was so young when he passed away, so there was just very little work, if any, that was ever done on that stuff. It was December 25th, 2003. Roy Weber's sister, Alicia Weber, and his mother, Lisa, were at their Bayside Village apartment in Newport, Rhode Island. They'd expected a call or a visit from Roy the night before, given the holiday, but he didn't turn up and the phone didn't ring. Alicia told the Providence Journal that she could already sense that something was wrong. By 5 p.m. on Christmas Day, three detectives from Providence Police, as well as officers from the Newport Police Department, arrived at the apartment of Roy's sister and mother to deliver heartbreaking information. Roy had been found dead in Providence. According to Malinowski's reporting, a security guard at Johnson & Wales University's Harborside campus off Allen's Avenue had been making his rounds around 10 a.m. when he saw a man leaning up against a fence. The man hadn't been there when he circled around about an hour earlier. As the security guard got closer, he found a pool of blood near the man's head. He was warm to the touch, but not breathing. First responders to the scene found a young white man with gunshot wounds to the back of his head. He was wearing black pants, a black sweatshirt, and white high-top sneakers that looked brand new. His red hair was matted with blood. The man had no ID on him, but police would later learn the victim's name by matching his fingerprints to a record in a national database. He was 22-year-old Roy Weber. It may have been Christmas morning, but the investigation began immediately. Police detectives and crime scene technicians scoured the scene for any clues. Any possible evidence found at the scene that day has not been publicly disclosed, but investigators have said that they did not find a murder weapon. Detectives pulled security video from cameras on the Johnson & Wales campus, but the tape was unhelpful. Rain and fog obscured the footage, and the cameras weren't pointed the right direction anyway. That evening, and in the days that followed, detectives visited bars in downtown Providence where Roy was known to hang out, hoping to learn any clues about his murder. 
early conversations and footwork by detectives uncovered several crucial details surrounding the circumstances of Roy Weber's life in late 2003. Investigators were able to establish a rough timeline of the days and hours leading up to his death. According to reporting by Zachary Malinowski, in the months before his murder, Roy visited his mother in Newport, showing up at her apartment with his face bloodied and badly beaten. He wasn't wearing any shoes. Roy told his mom that he'd been jumped. He later told several of his family members that a drug deal had gone bad and he feared for his life if he went back to Providence. Then, in early December 2003, Roy had supposedly been living with an older man in Massachusetts. He told his mother and sister that it was a nice place, and the man liked him better than another quote-unquote street kid who also lived there. The situation concerned his family, but things seemed better. And then, Roy returned to Providence. Investigators learned that on Christmas Eve 2003, Roy Weber was in Providence with several other men at the Cathedral Square Apartments. Today, the complex is classified by its property management company as affordable housing for the elderly and disabled. In the early 2000s, the apartments were a hotbed of stabbings, assaults, drug-related offenses, and other criminal activity. Witnesses placed Roy at those apartments, where he and others were using substances and engaging in sex work. Some of the people there were residents of the complex, and others were individuals who lived and worked on the streets of Providence. The witness statements were just rumors, until a month into the investigation, when detectives confirmed the stories with the help of cameras in the apartment building's lobby. On Christmas morning, at the 6.35 a.m. timestamp, Roy Weber is spotted in the footage. He's facing the camera and clearly visible, talking to a young black man whose back is to the camera. At the 6.36 and 6.54 a.m. timestamps, there's a middle-aged white man in the lobby, too. Roy Weber's body was found less than four hours later, so identifying the people he was with in that apartment complex lobby during those final hours of his life was high priority. And so, police decided to publicly release two images of the middle-aged white man seen in the security footage. I obtained the images of that man from the now-defunct RoyWeber.com website. The site was created by private investigator Thomas Shamshock, who took on Roy's case at no cost to his family in the early 2000s. According to Internet Archive capture records, the site was active from about 2008 to 2012, but is now only accessible through the Wayback Machine Internet Archive. In the two security footage images, the man appears clean-shaven with a neat, short haircut. His face is angular with a sharp nose and strong jawline. He might be wearing a high-collared, dark jacket, but any other description would be guessing on my part. The photos are posted at darkdowneast.com. In 2007, Major Stephen Campbell of the Providence Police Department told the Providence Journal, quote, We think that Weber was with this guy. We don't know who he is. End quote. If police have since identified this individual, they haven't made it public. The search for the mystery man continues. Rich Holcomb remembers where he was when he heard the news about Roy Weber. It was Christmas morning, 2003, and I had been getting high for several days. 
I was downtown smoking crack, and then I got off my my crack run that I was on, and then I went back to I lived at my grandmother's house at the time, and I went there, and she said, "Oh, your friend Lisa keeps calling." And she's worried about you, and and she needs you to call her right away. And I, I called my friend Lisa, and she's like, "Oh, are you okay?" And I said, "Yes." And she's like, "Thank God." She's like, "I just saw on the news this morning that someone around your age, is said a white male in his late teens or twenties, was found dead not far from where you, where you, you know, get high and and sell yourself, which is down the street from the the Megaplex bookstore." in the Johnson Wales campus, she said that, you know, she thought it was me that that was killed. And uh, she was happy to hear my voice. At the time of Roy Weber's murder, Rich and Roy were running in the same circle, both using substances and engaging in sex work on the streets of Providence. Rich told me that Roy had a reputation for getting mixed up with bad people and causing trouble. He was known to steal from people and rip them off, Rich said. The people Roy burned would come looking for him. When Rich heard the news about Roy's murder, he thought of one man in particular who had been looking for Roy. He went by the name Buzz. This man was like in his late 60s, 20 years ago, and he smoked crack regularly. He was in bad shape physically. And so I would be shocked if this guy was still alive unless miraculously he got clean at some point and he's in a nursing home but I I I don't I have no idea but that man was driving around downtown looking for Roy he wasn't happy with him I had run into Roy a couple of times I had let him know that that buzz was looking for him and I was like wow and I knew that guy as crazy as as crazy as he was and as he was a dangerous guy he was a unpredictable person and so I thought that it, it was strong possibility it could have been Buzz. Buzz was not the man's real name. Rich told me that no one ever knew his real name. But Rich knew his face, and he knew where Buzz had once lived. He thought maybe the information would be helpful to investigators, but he also feared what could happen if he came forward with a tip. Because I was still struggling in my addiction, I was, I was paranoid. I'm like, oh, if I go to anyone with this information that my life could be in in danger or something. So I didn't want to, at that, immediately I didn't want to say, oh, I think I might have some information. I just was scared because I was still, I wasn't done using drugs yet. So I was like, if I say something and then this guy finds me, he he could kill me, you know? So... It took a little while for me to to make the call, but I did. Rich remembers contacting private investigator Thomas Shamshock, whose flyers were all over Providence at the time. He told the PI what he knew about Buzz, hoping it would help. But Rich hasn't heard anything about the investigation or whether his tip was valuable in any way. Rich, do you think you'd still recognize Buzz today? Yes. Have you seen the photos of the man in the security footage? I have seen that, and I've looked at that. I've looked at that very closely. I, you know, what I can tell you is, Buzz had a big. I don't know how to explain the style of mustache. It was, it was no beard, but it was a long. It was a long, almost 
Western style mustache. I don't even know if that makes sense, but it was like it's like a, a Wild West character would have like this long mustache that sort of went below his the sides of his lips. Buzz had gray skin and he was really tall and shaggy hair. So that man in the photo could be Buzz if Buzz shaved his mustache. And also I think the guy had his hair combed nice and stuff. And I've never seen Buzz was sort of very shaggy, but if he was going to do something like this and he was alert enough that there were cameras around, then he may have shaved his mustache and, and did his hair differently. I mean, I've, that's a possibility. So the man doesn't look like Buzz to Rich. And he's since heard so many other theories about what could have happened to Roy and who may have been responsible. Although Rich felt strongly that Buzz was someone authorities should look into at first, that confidence has faded. Since then, so many theories have come out about who could have done this. Other people had, had come forward and said, oh, I think it was this one. I think it was that one. I think this is what happened. I think is that what's what happened. So it made my little story. See, I, was, I started to, to, to not be so sure. But there is one thing that Rich knows for sure. I never saw Buzz again. I never, ever saw Buzz after that. So I don't know if that's just all big coincidence or if he did have something to do with it and left town or I have no idea. But he, but he was somebody that was regularly driving in circles downtown looking for male sex workers. And I just never saw him again. Roy Weber's murder had a significant impact on the men of downtown Providence. People were talking about it. People were, were shaken up about it. You know, I, I just think just walking down the street at that time, it was a very eerie feeling. The investigation seemed to progress for several months as investigators followed up on leads and continued to interview witnesses. The security footage image of the mystery man was the biggest public break detectives had. And according to a 2007 report in the Providence Journal, police even had a suspect, though it's unclear if that suspect was the same man in the photos. The supposed suspect was never arrested. Detectives were transparent about the challenges of investigating a case like Roy's. There was a reluctance to speak up on both sides of the coin. Roy's friends and acquaintances on the streets of Providence didn't want to get mixed up in an investigation when they had passed run-ins with the law themselves. And the men who paid Roy for sex didn't want to be found out. The private investigators and, and the police, I think they hit dead ends because they had sort of these stories with these people's code names or their street names, and they weren't really anything that they had enough evidence to go on. Roy's mother told Zachary Malinowski for the Providence Journal that she kept up with the investigation and checked in with detectives monthly for a while, but then they stopped returning her calls. She expressed her frustration that maybe Roy's lifestyle made him a lower priority to detectives. It's something Rich has thought about too. 
I was, uh, yeah, I would ask myself, like, oh, if this was a Johnson and Wales student that didn't have a criminal record that wasn't known to be a sex worker and a drug addict, would his case have been solved by now? Even though we have so much more education and information out there about the subject of addiction and recovery and overdose and even human sexuality. There's still taboo subjects to people and and there's still a lot of stigma around them. And so, you know, a lot of times people just don't see drug users as human beings. They see them as throwaway people. They're a headache to the police, they're a headache to society, and they, they just rather not have to deal with them in general. So I just think that, sure, it's, it's possible that that was a factor in, in all of this. In 2007, then-Providence Police Major Stephen Campbell refuted the belief that the case wasn't prioritized or effectively investigated due to Roy Weber's lifestyle. Major Campbell showed a three-inch thick case file to the Providence Journal, stuffed with reports and photos and interviews and other investigative materials. Campbell presented it as proof that they were and had been working on the case. Whatever caused the lack of progress, stigmas or bias, or just a lack of new information to work with, Roy's case stalled out just a few months later. Roy Weber's murder remains unsolved, and Roy's memory all but disappeared from the streets of Providence. You know, people were concerned about it or they would think about it, but, you know, life went on. And uh, people continued doing their drugs and continuing their sex work, and it just kind of faded away. But I, I mean, I never forgot it. Rich Holcomb never forgot about Roy Weber. As he began to transform his life and enter recovery, Roy's story, and the story of men like him, was a primary motivator as he began his advocacy work on the streets where he used to use substances and sell himself. In 2007, I started doing outreach work to the male sex workers in the city of Providence. Once I got clean and got into recovery, you know, I, I know the challenges and obstacles that I was facing, my sexuality, the trauma of my past, all of that stuff was obstacles that were difficult to, to overcome and very challenging. And I knew how difficult it was for me. And then I would see some of my fellows from the streets come in and out of recovery and they were struggling. And it just seemed like the, the ones, the, the male sex workers always had trouble getting clean and, and entering recovery. I think just some of the trauma and stuff that they had to go through was so scary that they didn't want to, they, they felt inequipped to deal with it. So they would go back out and get high. And so um, I wanted to make it easier for the next generation of men who struggle with these issues, who have these traumatic pasts, to make it easier for them, to give them a shot at getting off drugs and, and finding a new way to live. And so I felt it was my moral obligation to, to help them in whatever way I could. It started as an organic, boots-on-the-ground effort. It was just me and a couple friends who were, happened to be in recovery. Um, and we would go out and give them condoms, safe injection equipment. We would test them for HIV and hepatitis C. We'd give them snacks, 
rides to detoxes, treatment centers, all of that kind of stuff. And, and we did this every day for about five years. Recognizing the tremendous need for services for male sex workers, the organic effort evolved into something even greater. And in, in the interim, we had assembled a board of directors. We came a, a 5013C nonprofit organization, and we started applying for grants to open up the country's first drop-in center for male sex workers. And it took years, but we were f- finally awarded funding by the Rhode Island Department of Health in 2013 and opened the country's first drop-in center for male sex workers. That was almost 10 years ago now. October will be 10 years that we've been open. Those were the early days of the original Project Weber, the first drop-in center for male sex workers in the country. When uh, I started doing work to help the, the sex workers in Providence, and they asked me what I wanted to call the project, I immediately said Project Weber, because I, I thought, it, you know, it, Roy represented this sort of lost population of people and the subject that no one wants to talk about, but is happening every day in the city. So, like, I felt like by naming it Project Weber, it bring attention to the case, and it also symbolized the type of people that we were helping, which was all the Roy Webbers on the streets. Rich's original vision for the project was all about peer-to-peer support. I wanted the people who staffed the organization to be former sex workers and people in recovery. I thought that was very important. I I know the organization has since changed that, but the original vision was we wanted people that had used to live that life, helping people who currently live that life. That shared experience is just sort of magical thing happens when you have that connection. It, It isn't like a person of authority talking down to someone. It's like we're talking with them and we're just sharing with them how we used to live and how what we did to get out of it. So that sort of thing really helped the original Project Weber. Project Weber merged with Project Renew in 2016. Described as a sister organization to Project Weber, Project Renew's original mission was advocating for alternatives to arrest for street-based sex work and providing resources to aid in recovery for those who used substances. Together, the two organizations now serve a broad population of men, women, and trans individuals. Founding Project Weber and fostering its growth are among Rich's proudest moments. But his years with Project Weber were also challenging to his recovery. Rich has since moved on from his work at Project Weber. I gave 15 years of my life to that work and it's just time for me to move on and do other things with my life because being around my own trauma my own pain you know seeing these guys come in every day it's very difficult you know 15 years of putting myself in the same trauma that i i've recovered from was just opening up wounds you know it was opening up old wounds it's 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 devastating and it's like going to war and seeing your comrades die and, and, and having to get up and, and, and face all of that again every day for 15 years. I'm just trying something different in my life now. Now that I have this gift of recovery and this gift of life, I'm trying to live and enjoy life without continuously being around sadness and trauma and pain 
every day. Rich Holcomb's original vision lives on. I'm proud that we have a safe place for male sex workers to go to and get services that wasn't there before. There was all these programs for the females, but nothing for the men. I've known about male sex work in Providence since I was 10 years old. So the fact that there was no organization that sprouted within that time that specifically helps this population of people, it was frustrating. And I, I started getting angry and then I started doing all this sort of advocacy work around it. And it was nice to finally see my dream realized Rich has helped create and participated in several documentaries about male sex work. I watched one of the documentaries as part of my research for this episode. Invisible tells the individual stories of male sex workers in Providence, Rhode Island, and Rich Holcomb's effort to get services for the neglected population of men. You can rent and watch Invisible at the link in the show description of this episode. Almost 20 years later, Roy Weber's case remains unsolved. I've made myself crazy about trying to figure it out for over 20 years. And I, I, at this point, you hear these little stories, little shreds of information, and you're like, oh yeah, maybe it's that, maybe it's this, maybe it's not. In 2021, WPRI reported on Roy's story in what appears to be its first media coverage in over a decade. Reporters Sarah Dwyran and Kim Kalunian spoke with Providence Police Major David LePayton. He said, quote, We know what his lifestyle was, but no one deserves to die like that. End quote. He also said that the case wasn't cold and that police had a person of interest. Quote, The person who did this shouldn't rest too easy because we're still on it. End quote. Numerous attempts to contact Major LePayton about the current status of Roy Weber's investigation went unanswered. To my knowledge, the case is still open and active. If someone knew who did this, if the person who did this told someone about it, you would have thought, you would think in the, in the last 20 years, someone would have come forward and, and said, said what happened. Because I don't, I don't think it was just the person that killed him and Roy Weber that know what happened that night. If you have information about the 2003 unsolved homicide of Roy Weber, please contact the Providence Police Department at 401-272-3121. For more information about the services and advocacy work of Project Weber Renew, visit WeberRenew.org. Unfortunately, you know, almost 20 years has passed and who knows if the people that were around at the time that have any knowledge of these things are even still alive. There's not much time left to really get to the bottom of it. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. Sources cited and referenced for this episode are listed at darkdowneast.com. Please follow Dark Down East on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you could, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to hear what you think of the show, 
and what you want to hear next, and reviews are really the best way to support this show and the cases I cover. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones, and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and homicide cases. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East.